0: Please note this episode contains discussions of situations or themes that some may find emotionally distressing. Listener discretion is advised.
1: All I had to do was walk into that room and say, Dad, I need you right now. I need help now. I silenced my pain that day and it nearly killed me. At 17, it started to fall apart at the seams. I would see people that weren't there that were trying to hurt me. I would hear voices. I live with chronic thoughts of suicide. The voices were running my life and they would win the day. The voice in my head beckoned, jump now. And I did. And it was an instantaneous regret for my actions and the 100% recognition that I just made the greatest mistake of my life.
0: Today's guest is the award-winning mental health activist and filmmaker, Kevin Hines. Now, Kevin's story is a true testament to the strength of the human spirit and a reminder for us to love the life we have. It was just two years after Kevin was diagnosed with bipolar disorder at the age of 19 that he attempted to take his own life by jumping from the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. Kevin is now one of only 39 people who've survived that 25-story jump. Though that fall would break his body, it did not break his spirit. And since that fateful day, Kevin has dedicated his life to spreading a message of hope and openly discussing mental health, often becoming a bridge between people who've made similar attempts and their parents, siblings, children, spouses and friends. Kevin's story has been credited with saving hundreds of thousands of lives. And today, as a mental health activist, storyteller, and filmmaker who's saving lives all around the world, it's time for Kevin to share his story with you. Kevin, welcome to the show. It is so good to have you with us. So thanks for being here. It's a real honor. Now, Kevin, you just filled in the graph of life. And and to kick off today, I want to start by going all the way back, all the way back actually to what is the earliest memory in your life that you have?
1: I would have to say my earliest memory was being tormented by eighth-grade bullies when I was in fourth grade. I don't remember much before that. Uh, it was brutal. Uh, these these were eighth-graders um, verbally and physically attacking a child. Wow. And... Um, and the teachers didn't seem to pay it much mind because I didn't look like them. They were white. I'm very mixed. And I was the only one in the school that was. And it was brutal. There were kids that were part of a group called um, SDI, the Sunset District Irish. Okay. And they are well-known in their older years, when I was a young man, they're well known for certain hate crimes in San Francisco, uh, particularly against black kids. And I'm part black. And they tormented me
0: every day. And so just for everybody listening, how old are you? What, how old is fourth grade and how old are they?
1: I'm guessing I was eight or nine. That's about right. I can't remember. Yeah. But yeah. Somewhere, around eight, somewhere between eight and eight and ten, I'd say. And, um, you know, they, they, uh, I, I'll never forget it. And I'll call him out. This kid, Nick Barsetti yeah. would hold my head down as I would swing to try to get away. And he would call me little red N word every day because of the color of my hair and the color of my skin. Um, and, uh, there were kids that would, you know, Mike Ramirez would get behind me. Tony Ribeiro would push me from the front. I'd fall over Mike and I'd crack my head on the concrete and bleed because of what I look like. And uh, they had no shame in what they were doing. They just, they, look, we we all know hurt people hurt people. Yeah, And they were definitely going through something at home that allowed them to tear apart a kid for no apparent reason. Um, you know, I need no pity for it. It just was what it was. Yeah. But it shaped me. Uh, and it absolutely shaped what would become in my teenage years, yeah. a vicious self-loathing, you know, and.
0: And what, Kevin, what was done about this? So you're going to school, this is happening. You're then going home. What was life like at home when you left school?
1: Well, you know, I, I have to give kudos to my mom. Mm. You know, Patrick and Deborah Hines adopted me, made me their son. They are my mom and dad. My birth parents died very tragically, very young because of mental illness, drugs. And and my mom, Debbie, would send me to school with a lunch bag filled with sticky notes about how great and wonderful I was. Because when I was at school, it was clear that I was being tormented by almost an entire class. And then, and then all the eighth graders on top of that are the older kids. And it was constant. It was never ending. And it was every day. And I would go and I would deal with that yeah. to the best of my ability. And my mom taught me something very young. And I don't think she said it in these words, but this is what I learned from her. Her mantra was, you know, be kind, compassionate, loving, Caring, empathetic, and non-judgmental to every person you come across, no matter their behavior toward yeah. you. And no, she didn't say it in those words, but that's what you gleaned from her, the lesson she taught in life. Yeah. She was the most is the most optimistic woman on the face of the planet. Like her mm-hmm. glass is never half empty or half full. It's toppling over yeah. with optimism, it always has. Used to drive us bananas. She would sing the song Quesera Sarah. Sera. Yeah. That Spanish yeah. song, What Will Be Will Be. Yeah. Uh, and but she would sing every lyric and it it drove us absolutely silly <laughs> but we appreciated it as adults because that optimism rubbed off on us and so no matter the negativity or the hate it was hate
0: hmm.
1: no matter the hate that we experienced that i experienced um i always gave back kindness
0: which is hard so when, especially when you're 8 and 9 yeah. as you say as an adult we take your mom's lessons on board this is happening at school bullying yeah And you would continue to just try and be kind and-
1: The way she described it was that, Kevin, they're only hurting you because they're broken. And so I would, in going to class every day, I'd know this was, I know something is gonna go south. Mm -hmm. Something is gonna go wrong, they're gonna hurt me. Um, I'd prepare myself, you know, this is from kindergarten to eighth grade, I'd prepare myself and then I would go and it would happen, or many situations would occur in one day and then I'd read those sticky notes that my mom left me. And I'd, I'd know I was a good person. But what it turned to over time, because you, everyone has an inner critical voice. Mm. Everyone has. I don't care how old you are. I don't care how tough you are. I don't care what race, gender. I don't care. You all have an inner critical voice. And that voice does not come from yourself. Mm. It comes from every spiteful, hateful hurtful, mean, or negative thing ever been said or done to you by someone else. You internalize that, you backbrain it, it stays in a pocket memory in your brain. And when you are traumatized again, it resurfaces. And so to defeat the inner critical voice, well, first of all, what we recite, what we repeat, mm. we believe. If we recite that we're ugly, if we repeat that we're ugly in the mirror, what are we going to believe? If we recite that we're beautiful, if we repeat that we're beautiful, that's what we're going to believe. Think of what every major faith is built upon. Recite a prayer, repeat a prayer, believe said prayer. It's it's scientific. It's, it's, it's the neuroplasticity mm-hmm. of the brain. What I ended up learning how to do to defeat that inner critical voice that came from childhood, that came from those bullies, and that self-loathing, I ended up... Uh, when I was first diagnosed with bipolar depression and learned this technique, and after I read the book uh, Conquering the Inner Critical Voice by Dr. Lisa and Robert Firestone, a father and daughter psychologist team, I ended up looking in the mirror every day, and these horrible thoughts would come up, and these insidious, inescapable mm. self-loathings would appear, and I finally started to reverse them. I'd say the opposite of whatever I just said. So I said, you're such an idiot, Kevin, I'd be like, Mm. you're a genius. Mm. You know, and and then obviously you go forth with that. Um, And now I, I teach that all around the world.
0: And so, as you say, the inner critic, this voice is made up often of what we hear. So when you're surrounded with these bullies saying probably very negative things, you started to switch it up. Now you're growing up at school in your teen years and you then get to the age of 17 you were diagnosed can you just share a little bit more about that moment of what prompted the diagnosis talking of voices in your head what was happening
1: so uh i would say uh early in the year when i had turned 17 prior to to turning 17 a couple things occurred i had been on epileptic medication for a seizure disorder that the doctors didn't know at the time dampened or hindered the symptoms of bipolar depression now i would later learn that both my biological parents had manic depression what we today call bipolar disorder and at 17 and 16 i, I started to i started to fall apart at the seams i would have panic attacks feeling like my heart was palpitating out of my chest i think i was having a heart attack i'd have uh Paranoid delusions, thinking that people were out to get me trying to hurt me, trying to kill me, even people speaking on buses in different languages, I thought they were talking in code about me uh-huh. I would have uh so so the panic attacks the paranoid delusions, mm-hmm. hallucinations auditory and visual I would see people that weren't there that were trying to hurt me i would I would hear voices um oftentimes multiple voices at the same time. And is that
0: Kevin just to ask, cause I think it's yeah. really important that people listening to this start yeah. to understand this, the seeing people and hearing voices, is that kind of in your day to day, you could be walking somewhere and there's a voice in your head or uh, just tell me a bit more. Yeah. It's still, it still happens. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's never quite gone away. The, I would say this, the,
1: the, the, the paranoid delusions and the hallucinations have never quite disappeared. Uh, they're, they're a part of my life. Uh, but today,
0: yeah.
1: I can differentiate between what is in a distorted reality that no one else can see and what is in the true reality, yeah. like everyone's reality. So I'll give you a, 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 mm. a literal example. I'd often be at speeches in front of 5,000 people and or keynotes, and I'd see a man in the very back left-hand corner with a yellow hoodie yeah. or like a poncho. With a, a butcher knife in his right hand, holding it like this upwards, with a big silver beard, very specific, and he was coming to kill me. And it used to be where I'd have to stop and get off stage and go, like, yeah. ask for help. But today, if I see that person or something like that, I know it's in a distorted reality. I can differentiate between what's really happening and what's going on because of my brain. Yeah, and that took a lot of time, effort, and hard work. Um, but yeah, there, what 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 most pe- people don't know about my my story is, if we go back even further, my my birth parents, God love them, they they were in a, a lot of pain. Okay, and they they started doing hardcore drugs and alcohol after they had me and my brother. And we were taken away from them. We lived in abject poverty in the beginning of my life in the Tenderloin District of San Francisco, the worst neighborhood there then, the worst neighborhood there today. We uh, existed in and out of crack motels. And these were the kind of places you paid for by the hour, and if you didn't, you were out. And mom and dad did whatever they had to do to pay on that hour by that hour to keep a roof over our heads, which meant they neglected their two boys every day. To go do score and sell drugs. That was our life. And I was fed in my infant months, in my formative months, with my brother, what mom and dad could steal Kool Aid, Coca Cola, and sour milk was our first dive. Ravaging my gut, destroying my brain. We didn't have the science of gut to brain health back then. Mm-hmm. We didn't know that the gut microbiome houses and creates all of your body's serotonin and dopamine affecting your mental well-being. Well, by definition, I was mentally ill from the very beginning mm-hmm. of my life. And uh, when you start with nothing, and when you start broken, it's hard to come back from that. But Pat and Debbie Hines saved my life. They saved my brother and sister's life from two, two different families. They gave us a future Amazing. They gave us opportunity and a chance. My brother, Jordash, my birth brother, we both bounced around from home to home in foster care. We got a vicious strain of bronchitis and he died. You know, he didn't have a chance. How old was he? Well, he was 10 months older than me. Yeah. Irish twins. And uh, um, I don't know how old he was when Mm -hmm. when, when he died. I just know we were in foster care and he passed away.
0: Yeah and then as you say this has been happening when you're really young you then go to school and this bullying is happening you know at the age of eight and you're growing up in school but i also read you know at school you were a champion wrestler you're in a football team so externally could people be thinking hey this kevin guy this kevin kid he's great he's looking fantastic but inside things were different
1: yeah i mean you know i i, I was very eclectic in that way um I was a WCL wrestling mm. champion. Football team went to state. Um, it was a facade. You know? There was an initial time where I was doing well in high school. I was, I was on the epileptic medication. There was no issue. But mm. When I turned 16 and then 17, when they took that medication out of my system... Because the lesions had healed in my brain. Okay. They did not know that my birth parents both had bipolar depression and that I had a 50% predisposition to it. And when my mind began coming apart at the seams, the, the doctors were at the same period of time, recognized that that epileptic medication was also for bipolar disorder. Mm. It was hindering that burgeoning disease of my brain when they took me off that medication because my lesions had healed. Mm. I went completely into psychosis. And I happened to, at the time, be on stage performing in a theater show called How to Succeed in Business, without really trying, playing a character called Gatch. And, uh, and I, I, I was looking out into the 1,200-person crowd, and I began to believe that 1,200 people were coming to kill me. I thought they were going to just rise, rush the stage, and end my life. So I ran off stage, and the theater director stopped me, and he had to go play my role for the remainder of the show and the remainder of the, uh, the, the shows after that. There was a, it was a five-weekend run. And um, I had to go see a psychiatrist. And what ended up happening was a sequence of events over time that led me to the greatest pain i ever experienced in my life. And I always ask people, I'm going to ask you, Guillaume, hmm. what is the one thing you want to happen When you find yourself in excruciating physical pain, what do you want that pain to do? Go away. Go away. That's everybody's answer. Stop, end. Mm. That's physical pain. I always say that brain pain is 300,000 times worse than any physical pain I've ever experienced in my life. And that's because the people around you Mm -hmm. tend to invalidate your pain. I cannot see it, so it must not be real. And that's the devastating thing about brain and mental health, is that the only two diseases mm-hmm. we still blame people for are addictions and mental illness. Two things, once a part of your life, you have no control over. Um, you know?
0: And then, and at that point, so you were diagnosed at the age of seventeen. And then, do you remember turning eighteen?
1: Was diagnosed at seventeen and a half. Okay. After a complete mental breakdown on that stage. Yeah. Uh, I don't remember turning eighteen. I was—it's a, a blur because I, I, I was going through so much. Yeah. I I don't even. Remember celebrating my birthday that year? I don't even know if we did because yeah. I was it was so tumultuous.
0: But what were those days like before we get to the age of nineteen? In a yeah. moment, yeah. that year, as you said, is just a blur. What were you doing day to day? You, I mean, I.
1: I know I graduated from high school that year. Um, oh, okay. So they barely let me walk on stage for graduation. Why? because I was so mentally unhinged that there was a rumor going around the high school that I was on drugs. There was a rumor that I was going, it was on drugs. All the teachers thought I was on drugs. They thought that's why I was losing my mind. They, they, they had never dealt with severe mental Uh illness in the school before like this. And, And I was behaving, uh, for lack of a, Better way mm-hmm. of saying it like a wild man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, there were situations where uh where I I uh my my teacher, Mr. John Fennell, who's my theater director, may he rest in peace. He he was the first person I ever knew that died by suicide. Um he was where suicide became an option for me. Uh, but before he passed, he's my favorite teacher, my mentor, my friend, my hero. It's like a second father figure to me. And um, he was the toughest teacher we ever had, but he, he taught thousands of kids across the Bay Area in theater. And they say that John Fennell created professional productions from high school kids. And they said that NYU scouts would come to the school to see who to bring home to their school. That actually happened. He was really good at what he did, but he was a, a primary alcoholic. He lived with substance use disorder, just like my birth parents. and, and, I'll never forget when he saw me break down on stage hmm. and he called my mom to come and get me and then she brought me to my first psychiatrist, Dr. J. Kevin Rist, the two of them, the two of those men I really cared about, they would they would take their lives. They would be the first two of 16 people in my life up till now that would die by suicide. Um, and that's, that's 16 too many.
0: And so your theater teacher, as you say, dies by suicide and you just said that's when it first became an option in your mind
1: it never crossed my mind that i had never become suicidal until until john died um and it it was seven months after his attempt that i attempted myself and i remember going to john's funeral and my dad we were at stop and go traffic and my dad at we were at a halt and my dad turns to me And he says, Kevin, you can never do anything like this. Kevin, you would never do anything like this, right? We love you. You have an obligation to your family to be here. We need you. And and at the time, at the time, seven months before I left off the Golden Gate Bridge, I said, Dad, I I would never do that to you. I would never want to hurt you or the family like that. That would never happen.
0: And you meant that. And I meant
1: it. I meant it. I meant there would never in my mind would, like, that's not an option. That's mm-hmm. not there. And then we sat there at John's funeral. I was inconsolable. I was wailing like a like a newborn baby who is colicky. And I mean, it was disturbing people around me. It was so horrible. I yeah. was just I was bawling like a baby. I could not control myself, just mucus just running down my nose. One of those real, real cries. And and it was a closed casket because of what he did to himself.
0: (sighs) Uh, And so the funeral that day, you're with your dad. Yeah. And he's with you at the funeral. Yeah. You've driven there and you said, Dad, you know, you mean it. You would never do anything like that. And then, obviously, months go by between the funeral and up to September. Were you back? You were in high school, or you've graduated? So graduated,
1: until- and uh, I was attending City College, okay, which is across the street from Reardon High School. Um, and they used to joke it's just an extension of Reardon High School because the, it's a, uh, uh or you know, uh, un- under level college, and mm. so I go. And, uh, I'm there. My dad drops me off on, on September 25th of the year 2000. Now what he didn't know is the night before I had written my note, the note that only 22% of civilians actually write who die by suicide. I wrote that note to my mom, my dad, my brother, my sister, my best friend, and my girlfriend at the time. I told them I loved them. I said I was sorry. I basically asked for their forgiveness. I put that note in my shoulder bag, that shoulder bag by the door. And at six in the morning, I entered my dad's room and I startled him awake. And he was wearing that sleep apnea machine, the breathing yeah. apparatus. And I startled him awake and he looks at me and he goes, Kevin, what's wrong? And I, Gian, I wanted to tell him the truth. I wanted to tell the one man who loved me the most in the entire world, everything, but I couldn't. The voices were running my life and they would win the day. And if you've never, have you ever heard auditory hallucinations? No. So if you've never heard auditory hallucinations, imagine you've got your earbuds in or your headphones on. And instead of that playlist of music or Mm. that podcast or that, or that audible book, you hear a person or people's voices in your head telling you things you have to do that you don't want to. And they're powerful. And they're overwhelming. And you can't escape them. And so as my dad is talking to me, I'm hearing voices saying, you must die jump now. It had already been determined that I was going to go to the Golden Gate. And the idea was that I wasn't going to go anywhere else.
0: And so that morning you've gone into your dad's room, you see him wearing the machine. Yeah. I startle him awake. He
1: says what's wrong and... Um, I say nothing. I just want to tell you that I love you because I thought it was for the very last time. And he goes, I love you too, Kev. But it's six in the morning. I don't have to be at work until nine and go back to bed. And he put his mask back on his face and fell soundly asleep as quickly as he had awoke. Right. Well, eventually he, he drove me to City College. And the interaction I had with him in that last, uh, in what I thought was the last moment I was going to ever see him, he turns to me and says one of his favorite mantras. He says it every day. He calls me today to say it. Kevin, I love you. Be careful. I kissed him on the cheek as I had done since I was a little kid. Yeah. I told him I loved him. I stepped out of the car. a, right, a tear rode down my right cheek off my chin and landed on my right lug's boot onto the middle shoelace. And as my dad's driving away, I said, that's the last time I'll ever see anybody I love. And the last time anybody I love will ever see me. And I was completely content to dive in my hands from lethal emotional pain.
0: And that thought's going through your mind as you got out the car. Yeah. And off you walk.
1: I just watched him drive away and I was like, this is it. I have to go. And then the voice in my head repeated what it was repeating. I eventually made my way to the Golden Gate Bridge. And most people don't know this story, but as I stood at this four-foot-nothing light rail, this ease of access to lethal means, ready to die by my hands, to leave my family forever, crying like a baby, I remember... I remembered the film, What Dreams May Come, by, with Robin Williams, where he goes, where his wife dies in the movie, and he goes to the pits of hell to take her to heaven. And that's what I thought about. I thought I was going to go down there and grab John Fennell, this complete fantasy, and, yeah. and, 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 and ascend to heaven with him because I missed him so much. And that's when a woman from my left approached me. She had blonde curly hair and giant sunglasses. And she said, Will you take my picture?
0: And at this point, you're in distress.
1: I'm bawling like a baby. She she couldn't see through the sunglasses. It's not her fault. It wasn't anybody's fault. There was no one to blame. We often have this blame game with suicide and Mm -hmm. this guilt that, that we live with eternally. What if we did this? What if we said that? What if we didn't say this? What if we didn't do that? It's a waste of time. We will never know their why. The only person that knows the why is the person that's gone. We have to start asking the question, how do we look to the living continue to fight to move forward to the pain pain is it's universal it's inevitable Mm -hmm. it's coming for all of us if it hasn't already I have learned over time and a lot of hard work that suffering is optional it's a choice every clinician I used to have every doctor told me I was suffering from bipolar suffering from mental illness, suffering from depression, and suffering from eating disorders when I was, and I was big time as a high school wrestler, and then again at 18 when I had a physical complication that led me to anorexia and bulimia the second time. I'm not ashamed to say that as a man. Mm -hmm. Suffering, 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 suffering. That's what they told me. I adopted that narrative as my own. I became a sufferer. But that only made me the victim of my own story until I got older and wiser Mm. and I realized, hey, wait a minute, I could fight my pain. I could battle my pain.
0: Mm. I
1: could live with my pain, hold gratitude inside my pain, and I can thrive despite of my pain. I can be the hero of my own journey if I believe It's a matter of perspective and perception. If I say I'm a victim, that's all I will ever be, even if I was victimized by something or someone. If I say that, if that's my narrative, that's Mm. all Mm. I will ever be. But if I choose to be the hero of my journey, the hero of my story, then I can thrive in spite of my pain.
0: But on that, moment though talking of pain suffering 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 all these words are around you you find yourself on the golden gate bridge a lady's come over sunglasses on will you take my picture what happens next
1: i took her picture five times and she walked away and my immediate thought which I have to say Guiana is the greatest lie I've ever told, is absolutely no one cares. Mm -hmm. It's the furthest thing from the truth. When I leapt off the Golden Gate Bridge to try to take my life, I got thousands of letters. I didn't know I knew thousands of people. I was 19. 1,200 kids from my high school signed a giant Card. And they had to unroll it. It was like the size of this room. They all signed it and wrote a note to me. I cannot tell you how many people called me and said, Why didn't you call me? I would have been there. Hundreds. Look, I'm well aware that not everybody has a great support network. Mm-hmm or system in place, but that can be built.
0: It can, and I think as you say, the biggest lie you ever told because people do care, but at the time you weren't feeling it in any which way. And I know for people kind of listening, you said that you're still on the bridge. You'd watched that film with Robin Williams and you said, go to the depths of hell to go to heaven. The lady takes the photo, you didn't feel the care. It's nobody's fault as you say, it's not about blame. But I think to be able to then – I just want to go – the, the voices in your mind at this point when your hands touch the bridge yeah. and you decide to jump, what was going through your mind as you did that yeah. and then as you let go?
1: So it was, it was very specific. It was my, my personal thought, absolutely, no one cares when she left. And then the voice in my head beckoned. At decimals, I can't express without piercing eardrums. Jump now. And I did. I walked back to the traffic railing. I sprinted forward. And I catapulted my hands over that rail. And it was an instantaneous regret for my actions and the 100% recognition that I just made the greatest mistake of my life it was likely too late. And it's been too late for 99.99% of the people in the last 87 years who've leapt off the Golden Gate Bridge. They're gone. I'm sitting here with you.
0: And as you jump off, as you say, your mind, which we will never know, you mentioned the why only that person knows, you're here to share your story. This instant regret... Because all these voices have been in your head, as you say, this feeling of pain, this feeling of suffering. And what was it, do you think, that triggered this instant regret? Because a, a, a second ago you were on the bridge, as you said, and it was, Let's, right. I've got to go to the depths of hell. Now you feel that you're going there. Your mind has changed and said, no, Kevin, no. Why did that change so quickly?
1: You know, it was in that four-second fall, those 25 stories, 240 feet, at 80 miles per hour, that I said, what have I just done? I don't want to die. God, please save me. And then I hit the water. Um, I prayed. And the, what led me to the instant regret yeah. was the idea, the, the recognition, when I thought it was too late, that my thoughts did not have to become my actions. They could have simply been my thoughts. I could have asked for help. My dad was right there in the other room. All I had to do was walk into that room and say, Dad, I need you right now. And he would have moved mountains to keep me safe that day. I know this. If I had told my mom, she would have done the same. I had gotten great. That's something a lot of people are really good at. You work in bettering culture in workplaces. You understand this. You understand how many people in work cultures around the world are daily silencing their pain. I silenced my pain that day. Mm-hmm. I buried my struggles. I shoved them down. I said they didn't matter. And it nearly killed me we must unsilence our pain. A pain shared is a pain halved. Now there are some really big time psychologists, psychotherapists and and gurus out there that disagree with me and say, you should never talk about your pain. But the more you bury your struggles, the more they bubble Mm -hmm. and fester and grow until they burst in things like rage, aggression, Mm. violence, substance use disorder, eating disorders, suicidal thoughts, ideals, or actions. When you bury your pain, it will destroy you. It will. Because you're pretending. You're pretending that everything's okay. And you you can't, that's unsustainable.
0: Mm. I think something you shared earlier is around voices in your head. And you got me just thinking now, you know because there are times I have this not often Kevin but where I'll try to focus I remember being at university and I had an exam or I've got to go to sleep things will go in my mind and normally about my parents and say this is going to happen this is going to happen then pictures go in your mind and it's so hard because the more you don't want to think about it the more you think about it and it's horrible and then you can't sleep and I'm sure we'll come on to it later how to manage that which I've had to meditate and focus on my breath to get away but it's it's horrible, yeah, and it's painful, and it's something that I told my mom that actually, but I don't speak about this. Yeah. And actually, it's probably more common you than have, we think. You have
1: to talk about it. When you speak upon something that is hurting you, mm. even in the brain, scientifically, you get a sense of relief. Yeah, there's a release. It's it. It's one of the reasons why art therapy is so successful.
0: Because
1: mm. you're taking your pain. Yeah, you're putting it. On a canvas yeah. and you 're creating something that releases that pain, whether it 's a painting or a sculpture or whatever it is doesn 't yeah. matter um, when you, when, you, when you release your pain, whether verbally or physically or otherwise it's why um, it's why a lot of folks that were uh, terribly violent growing up and a lot of fights end up becoming boxers. H- harnessing their anger and their rage into something actually productive mm. and they go on to become champions, right? So so think about that, you know, and think about um, the people that are by nature violent. Yeah. And instead of going and committing crimes and hurting other people, they go into a discipline like uh, like a martial art or boxing and they train and they harness that effort mm. to... Become some of the most physically capable beings on the planet, and they get to go and they get to release that pain. Or even a yeah, football player, right? Yeah, a American football player gets to go and hit the other yeah. player. That's a very violent act, mm-hmm. but a lot of them don't do that outside of that. Yeah, of the gridiron.
0: Well, it goes back to what you said about these eighth graders when you're in fourth grade. Yeah, if they'd put that energy into something else. Yeah, but no, they they took the violence took out, out on, on a kid. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But talking of this word pain, right, Kevin? We've spoken about this mental pain, the pain that's going on in your mind. You've hit the water four seconds, and you can recall those, obviously, four seconds as we speak right now. Yeah. You hit the water that I can't even imagine the physical pain now. What happens next? You've hit this water over the Golden Gate Bridge. Now, you're here today as we sit down.
1: Yeah. How? My insides imploded. I I shattered uh, three vertebrae. Um my T12, my L1 L2 upon impact, uh I sprained my right ankle, which is kind of silly because it was a very minimal thing., um, but I missed severing my spinal cord by two millimeters. I missed certain death by two millimeters. I think about that sometimes like two millimeters. two millimeters away from. Disappearing from this world forever. And no one, if that happened, no one would know that I did not want to die that day. No one would know I knew I made a mistake. In the water, as I flailed to stay afloat, I kept going down. After I got to the surface, mm. I kept going down. My boots were waterlogged, my long sleeve clothing was heavy. And that's when something began to circle beneath me. And I thought, you got to be kidding me. I didn't die jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge and a shark is going to eat me. <laughs> Perfect. And I'm literally with my one good arm punching this thing, trying to make it go away. And I'm just sliding off its back. I didn't know that a, a shark's back is like sandpaper and would have okay. cut you. But this creature was slimy and I'm punching this yeah. thing thinking this thing's going to bite me at any moment. My gosh. What the, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, but it doesn't bite me. It doesn't bite me. It doesn't bite me. It's just circling beneath me, <sighs> bumping me up. And I realized, no longer am I waiting or treading in the water. I'm lying atop top on my back being kept buoyant wow, by this yeah. creature circling beneath my shoulders, my neck, and my <sighs> knees. And I was like, this is one heck of a nice shark. And I, I, again, I I was a little delusional. I named him Herbert. Because I had to name this creature that was saving my life. And... When I give a speech, I tell him I named him Herbert. Herbert yeah. And I always say, Are there any Herberts in the room? My granddad's name. Oh, it's your granddad's yeah. name? Oh, nice. Yeah. Well, I can tell you, uh, nobody ever raised their hand. Uh, Nobody's name is Herbert. I always say, Herbert uh, is like Elvis. He left the building a long time ago, you know? But But, okay, so this creature takes off right when the Coast Guard boat arrives. And these wonderful officers fish me onto a flatboard, put me in a neck brace, and strapped me in from head to toe. And they start asking questions. I was fully awake and aware they were not expecting that. They were expecting a body recovery. And they said, kid, do you know what you just did? I was like, yeah. I just jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge. And they said, why? And I had no answer again, no reasonable answer. I said, I don't know. I thought I had to die today. They said, son, do you understand how many people we pull out of these waters that are already gone? I said, no, and I don't want to know. They said, we're gonna tell you anyway. I said, young man, this unit alone, this year alone has pulled out 26 dead bodies from these waters and only one live one, you. And the guy goes, in our career, we have pulled out 57 dead bodies from these waters and still only one live. one you. That was the greatest point of perspective I've ever received in my life. And on that boat, I made a cognitive decision that no matter the pain I would ever be in again, I would never attempt to take my life. It's not mine to take. I will never die by my hands. But, Gian, I live with chronic thoughts of suicide. They plague me. They will never take me. Every time I become suicidal, I do two things. Two things I teach all around the world. Number one. I find a mirror, any mirror, anywhere. I look in that mirror mm. and I repeat to myself, my thoughts do not have to become my actions. They could simply be my thoughts. And yeah. I say it over and over and over again. The second thing I do is turn to anyone beside me, near me, around me. Yeah. And I say four simple but very effective words. It's my shorthand for when I'm suicidal. Everybody in my family and friend network knows it. I need Help now. Now let's be clear. Not everyone we turn to Mm -hmm. in this life is going to be able to help us because not everyone we turn to can empathize, understand, or even believe what we're really going through if it's brain pain. But by the sheer probability of the number of people you turn to, someone will be willing to answer the call. And in 23 years of regular thousands upon thousands of thoughts of taking my life, I have stayed right here. Mm. I need help now. My thoughts do not have to become my actions. They can simply be my thoughts.
0: And I think it's so just people listening to this, because as you say, there will be people listening who are having negative thoughts right now who are, you know, it's, and you've taught me this a lot over time, your thoughts do not have to become your actions. And just people do care. They do. Tell them that you need help and yeah. somebody will support you and be there for you. And over the years then, Kevin, you've gone on to help thousands of people. You really have to be here tomorrow, which I know is your motto, what you share with me and those around the world. And, and also your film that you released you know suicide the ripple effect because this word ripple effect i think it said so much where did you come up with the name for that and and also just talk me through what was happening after you were 19 and your recovery
1: yeah yeah so so uh the suicide the ripple effect yeah came from a couple of things the first was that my father Patrick took me back to the bridge a year to the date of my attempt. At the time of my attempt it was 10 in the morning on September 25th, 2001. He called me. I was at city college and he picked me up from the exact same spot. He dropped me off at a year before when I went to leave for the Golden Gate Bridge to take my life. So he picks me up and right before he picked me up, he'd call me and he said, Kev, we're going for a drive. My dad's really gruff and tough. And I was like, yeah, dad, where are we going? He's like, I said, Kevin, for a drive. Okay, dad. So we're in the car and we're driving. We're going down Park Presidio,
0: okay.
1: which only go 19th Avenue to Park Presidio, which only goes to the Golden Gate Bridge. And we pull over. And so I kind of get what he's doing. So we pull mm-hmm. over at the police officers union building. And there's always police officers in their dress blues with their rank pins in the windows and there's police bikes and police cars lining the the parking lot. Uh, It's a red brick building Mm. and there's this beautiful flower bed about the size of this table with beautiful tulips coming up with uh, purple tulips with gold pollen inside. And my dad goes, Hey, Cap, jump out and pick a flower. I was like, dad, I'm not picking a flower. San Francisco, you get arrested, you get fined. He goes, pick a damn flower. So I go and I pick a flower. We leave. No, No cops are chasing us. Here we go. And we get to the Golden Gate Bridge parking lot. My dad goes, Kevin, we have to do this. And I said, I I don't want to go out there. I I can't go out there. He goes, Kevin, we need to do this. We need closure. And I'm thinking, like, you need closure, old man. I need to go home and lay down. But I didn't say that. He's 6'1", and I'm not. So I go, fine, Dad, we'll go out there. So we go out there, and the, the first step I took onto the bridge walkway, which isn't even over the water yet, I started to get vertigo. I get dizzy, get nauseous, I'm feeling sick. I, oh, I can't do this! And he goes, "Come on, Kev, show me exactly where. Show me the exact light rail." Talk about reliving trauma. And yeah, I was yeah, like, yeah. Oh my God, Dad! Yeah. I like, but I knew exactly where I was. I could see it from where we were. I knew exactly where I jumped.
0: But how are you feeling at this point? Are you oh, scared? I'm, I'm just, are you? I'm, I'm,
1: I'm, my whole body is tingling. I'm, I'm nauseous. I I, 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 I was dizzy. I get out there, and I get to the to the light rail. I remember putting my hand on the rail and just kind of gripping it. Um, I said, Dad, this is it. And he said, okay. And he grabbed my left hand and his right. And we're holding hands. And we said, "In our father, and a Hail Mary. And he goes, drop the flower. And I go over the rail, and I drop the flower. And it washed down very slowly, and it hits the water, mm. Taking the tiniest of ripple effects, and two feet to the right, yeah. popped up a sea lion, oh. and it was the most beautiful moment I have ever shared with my father. Next to him being the best man at my wedding, oh. and there was no other choice. All my friends were pissed off.
0: Yeah, <sighs> but he sounds like if anybody deserves that, it's it's Pat Hines.
1: So. The reason we have the name the ripple effect yeah. is because of because of my dad. Wow. And uh, you know, and 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 this, obviously the second reason is, mm-hmm. uh, for every one death by suicide, there are 150 people directly affected. <sighs> That's not to count the secondary effects, the yeah. tertiary effects yeah. that go on forever. Yeah. That's not to count the niece and nephew who were 2 or 4 and they were never told their uncle died by suicide and mm. then they get older and they're told and they relive the whole thing in their effect you know yeah. what for every single suicide mm. the number of people that are affected in my opinion is incalculable yeah.
0: <sighs> And uh, I mean, going back to your work today, which is just incredible in around suicide prevention and brain health, as you say, I've got to ask you a question because the Golden Gate Bridge, Kevin, was built in 1937. Yeah. Right. And I know just a few months after being built, somebody died by suicide from the bridge. And there's now been thousands. Yeah. I know you've been involved now in looking at how we can net the bridge or create a way that we can prevent suicides. I know it's also quite costly and yeah a lot is going on is i I guess my question is and one i'd love to learn from you it's obviously a very expensive operation you can't put a price on a life every life is precious and dear so by doing this in the future and i know it's going to happen very soon that will mean there'll be no more suicides from the golden Gate bridge we uh
1: so so uh right after my attempt yeah and my subsequent physical recovery uh I was invited to be a part of what's called the PFNC, the Psychiatric Foundation of Northern California. And I was on their board, and our our goal was to raise a rail, initially a rail, at the Golden Gate Bridge. That fight failed. Seven fights before that. Since 1937, after the first suicide, the bridge patrol of that era wanted to raise the rail. They failed. Seven subsequent fights, eight fights total, failed. After the film The Bridge came out that featured my father and I in a 10-minute segment in that documentary, which got me into documentary filmmaking. Mm. After that film came out, my father founded, alongside Paul Muller and Dave Hall, the Bridge Rail Foundation. And, he found, and I was one of the co-founding board members. Yeah. And so we start this foundation with the sole goal to raise the rail at the Golden Gate Bridge and effectively stop the suicides there forever. It turns into a net because when we did the study of the bridge, um, the public would not allow for it to be anything that was visible. Because God forbid you, you ruin the aesthetics of the Golden Gate Bridge to save lives. What are the aesthetics of a bridge compared to one human life? That's someone's mom, dad, mm. brother, sister, mm. fiance, loved one, family member, or friend. And so we fought to raise the net. I've been a part of that effort mm. uh, for the last 23 years since my attempt. Other people have been in this effort for 30 years. Um, Dr. Jerry Motto, who founded the Caring Letters as a VA hospital specialist, psychiatrist, the head of the head of psychiatry department of the hospital san francisco when it was there dr jerry motto uh, since passed away he had fought for this effort for 30 years he doesn't get to see it to fruition but in part because of him we have this effort and as of what looks like december of this year not one more person will ever again die off the golden gate bridge and it will become the largest brightest and most powerful beacon for suicide prevention, reduction of access to lethal means right around the world. It's wow. going to be incredible. Now there are a lot there. I just saw this article about how what a waste of money it is to spend 400 million dollars on raising a net mm-hmm. when very few suicides according to the whole of suicides in the world occur there. Um and that, you know, you should put all that money towards mental health. Okay. I'm sorry, stop. We fought a small group of like-minded people who lost their loved ones at the Golden Gate Bridge have been fighting for no other person to lose their loved ones at the Golden Gate Bridge for 30 years. We found that money. You did not. You go find the money for mental health on your end. It's out there. Go get it. We have worked for 30 years. You weren't a part of this article writer. I don't care who you are. Mm. And no, it's not a waste of money. It's proof positive that a small group of like-minded people yeah. can do anything. It's beautiful. And that was a big insult to our faces. And, and I, I get where the person's coming from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get where their standpoint, um, but these are mostly highway and transportation funds that can go to fix potholes or they can go to okay. save lives. Yeah, yeah. What do you choose?
0: Which I think there, there's a few things, again, people are quick to make a judgment without one, uh, being directly affected and knowing how these people feel who are fighting day and night for this. And two, as you say, it's not a random allocation of funds. It's diverting what would go elsewhere to save lives. But Kevin, I go back, my mind goes back to 19 year old Kevin, you know, Mm. being on that boat and then pulling you out and saying, do you know how lucky you are of all the bodies they pull out that you're alive? How does it feel to be alive today?
1: Every waking moment is a gift. Mm -hmm. Every place I get to go. Everything I get to do. Because this almost didn't happen. I take nothing and no one for granted anymore like I used to. The most important part of today is being with all of you. You are my gift today, not the other way around. Shout out to me and Michaela and Mark Aww. and Rebecca. You know, because like, uh, I'm in a lot of pain. Yeah. You know, you understand that? Losing your dad and the talk we had on my podcast, you get it. I'm in a lot of pain. I'm in a lot of physical pain. I throw out my back like every other day cause the metal plate in there and I can't do anything about yeah, that. Yeah. I'll pick up a sock and I'll throw on my back, you know? Yeah. It's part yeah. of the deal. It is what it is. I, I did what I did. I did it to myself. Mm-hmm. So I have to, I have to take responsibility yeah, for yeah. my actions and I have to move forward. Wow. But it's not easy.
0: Now it's on that note, Kevin, that, I'm going to mix things up a little bit today because rather than doing what we normally do, which is a quick fire round, I'm, I'm, I'm too into the conversation of your superpower because, of course, it, it's my job on this on this show to really get to know our guest lives and go into your life to look at, you know, what is your superpower? And these are the things that, for me, everybody's got one, but it's the things that make us who we are in the difficult times. It gets us through, but also makes us even better in the good times. And getting to know you in recent years, uh, there's one thing that kind of stands out for me that I've just got to write this down. Um, Go for it. Because every time I've met you, you're always so, I think, thankful for the people you're with you know you're always so and and kindness isn't right you're very kind you know but thinking of the super it's not just kindness and it's not just you know hope is important for you but there's something bigger that i think gets you through in my eyes some of the difficult moments and allows you to thrive today and the word is gratitude right and i just feel that Your superpower being how grateful you seem to be every single day of your life. And every time I meet you, we've been for breakfast, dinners, you just say, you just said there. I'm grateful to be here with this videographer team. I'm just grateful to be here today. What does this word mean to you, gratitude?
1: Yeah, I almost lost everything. My family almost lost me. It's not a cliche when I say I hold gratitude in every waking moment. I wake up. I thank God I'm alive. I get through my day. I go to bed. I thank God I got to live through that day. And I pray that I get to wake up tomorrow. But if I don't wake up tomorrow, Gian, I am grateful that I have had one of the most beautiful lives a person can ever imagine. And uh, I've met some incredible people doing amazing work (laughs) to change lives all around the world. I mean, come on gian like over 200,000 people have said this story saved their life if I die tomorrow of natural causes I'm gonna go out a happy man yeah. you know you know I think back to that song my mom sang que sera, sera what will be will be I have no control over over national security in America, around the world. I have no control over uh, the food supply chain. I have no control over what other people do. Or I have no control over wars that are fought, Mm -hmm. over famine, over poverty, over any of it. I have control of how I treat myself and the people I love. So I better treat them well and I better hold gratitude to the deepest degree for every single being around (sighs) me. Except for spiders. I hate spiders.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Not feeling grateful for them. But Kevin, this word gratitude that you practice daily, and again, people have heard your story today or in the past, and if somebody's listening thinking, you know kevin practices gratitude he holds it in his heart but look at his story you know from the golden gate bridge he survived i get why kevin would feel grateful today if somebody's listening how can they practice gratitude more in their everyday life
1: oh this is really important so i have a friend named ricky who uh taught me this gratitude poem he he he, mm. he wrote i don't know the whole poem but part of it was uh was uh he, he used to be on, he'd be on, he'd travel a lot for a living. He used to be on planes and he always hated because every time he got on a plane, there's a screaming baby on the plane. He would drive him bananas. Yeah. Why do you bring your baby on the plane? He'd say, and he gets so upset. And he guys sit there the whole thing. He would get so angry. And then he read Eckhart Tolle's book um, about gratitude. And he realized it's a gift that I get to hear the baby crying on the plane because I have my hearing. So many people do not. I'm, I'm able to hear, and he realized that every time that happened, it was a reminder hmm. that he's got his hearing, and he appreciated it, and he, and he took a look at every other aspect of his life. Yeah, and even the most the most difficult, painful, struggling moments in his existence, he found a way to hold gratitude for. And, and I feel that same way. Is that like this? This the word gratitude? The is not is so much a word as it is mm-hmm. an action. That uh, if you lose your leg tomorrow, how do you hold gratitude inside that immense pain? Yeah. Well, you just go. Holy well, least I have other guess, leg. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And you can you can break this down for every situation you've mm-hmm. ever been in. And I hold gratitude inside the immense pain I experienced as an infant. Mm-hmm. Because of that pain, and because of all the pain I've experienced up till now, I've learned how to never let my pain defeat me. I let it build me Mm. brick by brick from the ground up until I'm stronger than ever. So holding gratitude inside your most painful moments will allow you to be resilient from them so you can survive them.
0: And it reminds me, I read the other day of people reframing their lives instead of I have to, to change it, I get to, to, I get to, I get to be here. And it's these, uh, like with anything, I think creating a habit, making gratitude a habit, part of your day-day, it's a practice, right? Practice gratitude of what are you grateful for? Don't just
1: say it, write it down. Yeah. Wake up every morning, meditate for 20 minutes. Mm. If you can't do 20, do 10. If you can't do 10, do five. Yeah. Just meditate. Yeah. And learn how to do it properly. And Uh, meditate mm. for five to 20 minutes every single morning. Wake up in silence doing that. Mm. And then- write down five things you are grateful for and five things you will be grateful for. Everyone does the R. Yeah. What you are grateful for from that happened yesterday. No, no. What are you going to be grateful for? Project it into the future. Manifest it. Make it mm-hmm. real, right? Because if you do that, uh, you can seek out that day to find those things yeah. as opposed to just letting them come to you. Yeah.
0: wow. Well, I think for everybody listening, practicing gratitude is something we all need to do a little bit more. And uh, thank you for kind of sharing those thoughts. But, Kevin, I've got one final question for you. And, you know, we started off today, which is with your earliest memory. You know, life's changed a lot for you over the years. And you mentioned there that, you know, if God forbid anything happens to you tomorrow, you die a happy man. You've helped so many people. But what do you want your legacy to be? What do you want Kevin Hines to be remembered for?
1: I want to be remembered uh as a as a good husband to my wife a good son to my to both of my sets of parents a good brother to my four siblings and a man that tried to do good for the world
0: thank you and I think I don't have to tell you this myself thousands of people say you try and you succeed and you do so much good in the world and you've taught me so much. And, and I think Kevin, before we finish up here, I think the final thing I I do have to ask though, because I think it's important for this episode is if somebody is struggling right now with their mental health and remember they might be from anywhere in the world. It's not just a certain line that they might have. What would you say to that person?
1: Well, first of all, uh, wherever you are in the world, uh, and I fully recognize that some Cultures in some countries don't recognize brain and mental health as something that is real. Uh, Some uh, countries and cultures don't, uh, don't keep suicide statistics. So whatever you're going through, wherever you are, if you are considering taking your life or you're in that kind of brain pain, stop, take a breath, Take 30 deep resonance breaths in through the nose for four seconds, hold for four seconds, out, pursed lips like a whistle, but no sound. Bring your heart to a calm, bring your body to a calm, bring your mind to a calm. It's scientific. Four, eight. Do it 30 times. Every time you're anxious, afraid, upset, struggling, or suicidal. And recognize this we're all going to die someday. None of us is promised tomorrow. We haven't cracked the code to immortality. Give yourself time plus hard work for things to change. There are ways you can get the help you need that are not necessarily clinical. If you can't avail of clinical treatment and help, if you can't call a crisis lifeline or text line, which I hope you can and will, find my mental health hacks on YouTube because Mm. they're helping thousands of people right now and I want them to help you and they're free. They're there for anyone and everyone. There are 35 of them. And if you enact these things that anyone can enact into your daily life, you will change your life. I know it's cliche and easy for me to say in the suicide prevention community Mm. that you're not alone. I'm not going to say that. I know what it's like to be alone. I know what it's like to have my family and my friends tell me that none of them would house me after my third psych ward stay that I had to get a new halfway home for the mentally ill or else I was going to be homeless. I know what it's like to be abandoned. Mm. I'm asking you no matter what your personal support network looks like or doesn't be here tomorrow. You are worthy. You are beautiful. None of us is perfect. Don't strive for perfection. It's a waste of time. You're meant to be here until your natural end. And if nobody else says it today, I love you and I want you to stay.
0: Kevin, thank you. And I think finishing off on, as you say, being here tomorrow, you are loved. People care for you just as much as I love and care for you dearly as a good friend of mine. And, you know, just for me, it's an honor to have you on. Thank you for sharing your story. There's so much you've taught me and I I can't wait to see the work that you do in the future. You know, you say, try to help people, you help so many people. I'm gonna keep practicing gratitude. I know so many people will, and I'll be with you, supporting you all the way. So thank you so much, Kevin. Thank you, Jan. Thank you, take care. Also, a thank you to you, our listeners, for being part of this community. By watching, subscribing, liking, and also leaving comments on all the videos, it honestly really helps us to grow the show and to invite more incredible guests to join us in the future. Now, our plans are super exciting, and with your support, we can make this even bigger. And so if you do enjoy the show, please do hit the follow button on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you're listening to the podcast. It really means so, so much to me and all of us at The Superpower Podcast. And if you're watching us on board your in-flight entertainment, remember to follow us when you land, or maybe you've got Wi-Fi in the sky. For now, it's a huge thank you for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode of the Superpower Podcast with me, Gian Power.